Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. So we are in a, um, a, a very light and moderately meaningless um, summer series uh, on the Emotionally Healthy Church in which we talk about other people um, who ought to hear the sermon and reference the podcast for them to do that. And um, so this one particularly this morning is a light, airy topic uh, that I'm pretty sure nobody in the room really actually needs, but probably knows friends who, who do, uh, uh, in, namely dealing with grief and loss um, and disappointment. Um, and so uh, this is, we're starting to land the plane on the series. Last week, uh, Darren, Pastor Darren uh, felt the pull of the Holy Spirit to take a, 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 if you haven't listened to the podcast, please do, because I think you'll recognize why it was so important that we take a bit of a detour and consider exactly the theme of one of the songs this morning, How Do We Fight Our Battles? Uh, very powerful and worth spending uh, 45, 50 minutes uh, listening in on it. Uh, he chose to uh, do a podcast on the topic that was assigned uh, to him, uh, and so you can pick that up as well, uh, garden.church or the, our, our uh, uh, iTunes page, uh, you can do that. Uh, and uh, so I'll be finishing up this week and next week on these two final kind of uh, conversations in which we talk this week about embracing grief and loss as the ongoing and necessary reality for the kinds of people that we are. Next week, uh, we'll talk a little bit about how to love well by making incarnation our model. So those are the two things. So now you can decide... Uh, if you want to come next week. Um, <clears throat> part of what we're trying to suggest here, though, is that especially for churches, and especially for those of you who may have grown up in churches, I think we spend a lot of time talking about the necessity, appropriately so, of spiritual maturity. Uh, what we have discovered over time, however, is that you cannot become spiritually mature without at the same time attending to emotional maturity. Uh, because a lot of the things that Jesus has redeemed uh, still uh, work their way through. Uh, we, are, we are new creatures in Christ, but we still are the descendants of our grandparents. We're still dealing with things that were done to us. And Jesus is not surprised by that. Uh, so, so we ought not be, and we ought not at the same time expect automatically things to be changed or radically different. Uh, partly because the goal is not simple life change. The goal is training us towards partnership with him in saving the world. So he wants to take advantage of our dysfunction, our brokenness, our family systems, the stories that we have experienced, the disappointments we've incurred, we've incurred along the way, the damage we have done to others. He wants to take advantage of all of those things because there's somebody who's experienced if not exactly the same as yours, parallels yours, who needs your story, uh, and who needs to kind of follow the breadcrumbs of your journey to wholeness. So that's why this, this becomes important for us as we think about this. 
Um, we, we start, as usual, we, we want to kind of frame this. And again, for those of you who are following along at home, we're using um, Peter Scarzero's book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, as kind of a backbone, a framework. And if you haven't already picked that up and started to work through that a little bit, please feel free to do that. Um, I don't base my sermon on it, although you'll hear some conversation back and forth with that. And that's fine. Um, I don't think I've ever had an original idea in my whole life. So uh, it, it's, it's, I don't mind stealing from anybody. Um, the text that I want you to kind of set in mind that frames where we're going here is from Genesis chapter 2 in which God, uh, early on in our story, because remember the stories in Genesis 1 and 2 are not somebody else's story. They're the story of how we are the way we are, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, And so he says, having spoken us into being in Genesis chapter 1, having formed us, breathed into us the very breath of our life, says to us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Please notice, work is a gift, not a punishment. Right? We are built to work. Heaven will be a place of industry. Our life hereafter, you will be working for the rest of your life and beyond it. The difference will be that work will not be a drudgery, if it might be that now, It will, in fact, be something that you can cooperate with God in the forming and shaping of the world heretofore. If you're counting on heaven being a place of leisure, I wouldn't get your hopes up. Uh, It's going to be a place of labor, uh, but meaningful and significant and creative labor in partnership with God. So we start off with this awareness. He puts us in the Garden of Eden, which has been constructed specifically for us to work it and to take care of it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you eat from it, you will surely die. Um, And I think it's fair to say that there are all kinds of ways of dying that we experience regularly because we didn't take him seriously. We decided that we were ready for the knowledge that he was trying to protect us from. The knowledge is not head knowledge, knowing about good and evil. The word here, the Hebrew word here, speaks of experiential, existential knowledge. The knowing in your gut having done something, that kind of knowledge. And when you enter, you, we, were, we, were, we were protected from that by our obedience. We were exposed to it by our disobedience. And I remember I'm saying our here because this story is our story. It's not like had you been there, it would have gone down differently. It's that you were there and this is what you did, right? This is what we did. This is our Story. So we chose to, to, to disobey and then to live in the outcomes, the consequences of our disobedience. Namely, we certainly die. Death is an ongoing and regular outcome of life. Jesus turns that around 
But in the meantime, and until it has been finally redeemed and restored, with death being no more, which is the final uh, end of the game that he's playing, we experience all kinds of death because we're subject to this reality. So let me underline this. We're built for a garden. We're built for shalom. We're built for wholeness. We're built for a place that none of us are yet capable of living in without screwing it up. The outcome of this is we will live every day of our lives with partly a sense of disconnection, a, maybe a disappointment, maybe a, 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 a sense of, of longing for home. Right? And we can mask it, we can cover it up, we can medicate it, we can pretend it's not true. But if we sit alone with ourselves for any length of time, we will discover at the very center there is this magnetic pulse that pulls us towards home, towards a, a destiny that we were actually built for and to which we are actually being drawn. Does that make sense? Does that sound right? Augustine said, the, 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 the heart is restless until it finds its rest in, in you, O God. And that's what I, I'm suggesting here. So, so in, the, in, in the meantime, uh, in, in, in the meantime, we, 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 in, 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 this, in this world that we live in, which is arguably just stunningly beautiful, gorgeous in all kinds of ways, Right? The, the creation of sunset and flowers and, 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 and blue on green and the wonder of that massive creation that sits right next to you that we often, we often or, or looks back at you in the mirror that we ignore as the, as the apex of God's creative genius, right? We, we, we smell a rose and we forget this is what a fallen rose smells like, right? But there's enough, isn't there? There's enough of a hint of, one, of the wonder of creation that it draws us, that we are drawn repetitively. We, we watch sunrise after sunrise, sunset after sunset, and we never, we, and unless we're not paying attention, and sometimes this happens, right? But we, can, we, 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 we see that sunset, and, and there is a moment Sometimes we are moved to tears by the sheer beauty of a fallen sunset. Because that beauty is of such a kind highlighted against the backdrop that we actually end up living, defined by death of all kinds, by disappointments, by grief, by loss. We're always going to feel slightly and sometimes more than slightly off out of joint. We see this modeled in Jesus, who Isaiah tells us was a man who was despised and forsaken. He knew what it was like to have friends who disappointed him. He knew what it was like to have people, soul friends, who betrayed him. Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted. And again, the same word here is not from a distance, but at the gut level, with grief. We see this in John chapter 11, verse 
in, in the middle there where he is coming to, to uh, care for his friends, uh, Mary and Martha, having experienced the death of Lazarus. And can I just say this? Uh, the fact that Lazarus ends up at the end of the story being raised from the dead does not do one thing to mitigate the deep pain that Mary and Martha felt upon his dying. Resurrection doesn't fix death, it redeems it. That's different. It doesn't make it as if it never happened. You will never, having experienced catastrophic loss and having had that loss redeemed, not walk without a limp. This is the point, right, of this story. So follow this along. Jesus saw Martha weeping the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, or this was Mary, rather, not Martha. He had a conversation with her a bit earlier. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Please notice the two layers there of, of response. First of all, Jesus grieves with those who grieve. Mary and Martha have come. Had you been here, he wouldn't have died. Please notice the statement of faith there. But he wasn't there, and he did die. And they're disappointed and angry at Jesus and heartbroken at the death of their brother. And Jesus does not dismiss their grief. He does not undermine it by saying, it'll be all right, give me 10 minutes, we'll be fine. He enters into it. He is deeply distressed. He is deeply moved in the spirit. In fact, in trouble, the Greek word here is the strongest word possible to describe this gut-wrenching, visceral engagement with grief. It, it, I have a, a, a friend who uses from, from Britain who talks about being gutted. That's the word. Jesus is gutted by their pain and their anguish, but not just theirs, because in, in their pain and their anguish, Jesus, Jesus recognizes a universality of a world gone wrong. He stands at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He stands at the tombs of anybody and says at the core level, this is not what it was designed for. This is not what my father had in mind. This is not the way it's supposed to be. That's the feeling. And when he stands there at this universal level, he cannot help but engage at the personal level, and he weeps. I would suggest to you that if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to learn to weep as well as he did. We need to learn to grieve like he did. We need to learn to walk through the valleys of the shadows of the deaths that we experience like he did. Not pretending they don't occur. Not pretending that it'll all be better in the morning. Not pretending that hope makes disappointment possible. Disappointment and hope are two sides of the same coin. If you aren't disappointed, hope is useless. Right? So here Jesus stands. He doesn't blame. He leans in, and this universal loss uh, guts him. Now, sometimes in the case of actual deaths of loved ones, 
a, a parent, a, a spouse, a friend, a child, uh, somebody that we care about. Uh, it, this past couple of weeks has just been horrific for me. Uh, one of my students, former students, committed suicide, pastor of a church in the Inland Empire. His, his wife was a, was, a, was a student at Vanguard where I teach. Uh, this past week has just been hell. A couple of weeks just seeing the, the, the outpouring of grief and dealing with the, the mental illnesses that, that produce an outcome where you just feel that there's not any point in going on. And you just, I, I, candidly, I had a couple of nights where I just, uh, every hour on the hour, I woke up and I'm just torn. Could I have? Should I have? Could I? When I? How? And, and, and that kind of ripples itself through. Do, do, do you know? And sometimes they're, 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 they're of that, it's easy to see, the, the deaths of that nature are easy to see. These are the most profound of our losses. They, they work their way through the system in important ways. But to be honest, most of our losses will be less significant. They'll still be painful, but they're, they're, uh, nonetheless, we don't want to undermine the loss because it's not as catastrophic as this one. Because we, very candidly, we, we probably should get used to losing. We should probably get used to disappointments. We're not built for this world as it is. It will consistently and constantly in every way possible disappoint us because this isn't home yet. And by the way, do you recognize the strategy that God has planted into our disappointments here? He doesn't want us to be putting wall-to-wall carpet in the tent of our disappointment as if we're going to live here forever. He wants to remind us that disappointment occurs because there is an awareness that there's something more that we're built for. You are transitional beings. You are built for eternity. You, sitting here this morning, will never die. 10,000 years from now, we will have a recognizable conversation with a recognizable person who sits here embodied this morning. Which means that everything around you will transition. Every relationship, every possession, every hope, every dream, every disappointment, you need to get very, very good at catch, hold, and then release. You're not built to get stuck in time. You're built for eternity, which means that all of the things of time must be released, which is why grief, one of the three protector emotions along with fear and and anger, grief is the most powerful of the emotions, but it makes us feel the weakest which is why we typically morph our grief into anger, because that's the one where we feel strong and do most damage. So sometimes grief is a response to actual death. Sometimes, though, it's the loss of a dream, the loss of a friendship, the loss of, a, of a, what a relationship might have been. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, like everybody else who's ever gotten married, is disappointed at some level with your marriage. Boy, that got quiet. (laughs) Maybe you were so disappointed in your singleness 
right? And then when you got married, that's going to solve anything, and you discover what? No, just a whole other boatload of disappointments. Can I, nobody else? Right? And if it's not you who's disappointed in your marriage, it's probably your spouse. It's the way it is. No, why? Because no human person can replicate in any way, shape, or form the nature of the relationship of intimacy we're built for with God. That's why. It is necessary for me to be disappointed so I can differentiate myself from the person in whom I have placed my hopes so that I can love him or her the way Jesus loves me. Otherwise, I will be parasitically loving. If I don't love... Myself, I, won't, I will love others as I love myself, which will be parasitic. Or more specifically, I will love others instead of loving myself. I will be a user of love. You see? That's more next week for anybody who wants to avoid that. So, so, so when we think through or, 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 or think about you, you buy a house. You know, you, 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 you enroll in a, in, a, in, a, in a course of study. You get a job. And guess what you find? With very few exceptions. Disappointment. And sometimes it's minor and tiny little things that are readily adjustable. And, uh, uh, but other times it's pretty profound. So much so that five years from now you're looking for another job. Right? Or, you, or, or whatever. And sometimes, let's be honest, they're unreasonable expectations we had going in. What in the world was I thinking? Believing that a job was going to bring me fulfillment. Come on. I'm the one that's going to live forever. It's my job to bring meaning to my job, not the job's business to bring meaning to me. It's going to fade away. I'm not. I got this thing backwards. No wonder everything looks so tiny. I'm looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Turn it around, bucko. The world gets a whole lot bigger when you look through the right end of things, right? So we're invited into, or maybe, maybe you've had a child. And he or she is not what you hoped he or she would be. I mean, I, I, maybe you got married and had a hard time becoming pregnant, and then you became pregnant and had a child, and look back with longing. Man, it was easier back then. <laughs> right? Because I don't know if you'd notice this, but if you feed them, they continue to grow and assert their own independence and will and start from about six months on, they start to leave home. Right? Right? <laughs> And maybe you, sitting here this morning, are a disappointment to your parents. Anybody want to get a piece of that action? <laughs> and sometimes necessarily so, because their expectations of you are unreasonable, and you just, look, Jesus, can I just be clear? Jesus was a disappointment to his parents. So you're in good company. I mean, let, and please notice, if we own our disappointments, they can be redeemed. If we ignore them, they can't. Or maybe the grieving is over the abuse you endured as a child. And it's just a God's honest miracle you're sitting here today 
fully clothed and in your right mind. I've sat with folks like that. I visit with students at Vanguard regularly and we go across the street for coffee and sometimes it's all I can do to hold myself upright as they unpack their story. And it's just like, how in the world, how in the world have you survived 20 years with the crazy you grew up with? You are a walking, breathing miracle, right? Or they still have to deal with the pain, with the disappointment. Maybe you've had parents who are disappointing you. And you finally come to the awareness they're just not going to be able to be anything other than who they are. I'm going to give up layering expectations on who they're supposed to be so that I can love them as they actually are. Does this make sense? This is the Genesis 3 world that we have created for ourselves that Jesus standing at the tomb of his friend Lazarus is grieving over. Or maybe it's something that you have done, decisions that you have engaged in that has brought you to a place of harm to yourself and harm to other people and you're just too prideful or embarrassed to look in the mirror and say, you are an idiot. What were you thinking? Oh, I know, you weren't. Okay, now what? Well, humble yourself, repent. But embrace the loss, the damage you have done to other people so that it can be redeemed. Don't bluster on as if it didn't mean that much. It's just a misunderstanding. If it was just a misunderstanding, fine. But I got to be honest. If it was just a misunderstanding, grow up. Sometimes it's not a misunderstanding. Sometimes it's a deliberate, with malice of forethought, betrayal of a relationship. Is there recovery from that? Oh, yeah. But only if you own it. If you don't own it, you're stuck with it. It's by owning it, by receiving it, that we can finally offer it up and let it go. Right? Or maybe none of the rest of this fits. Maybe you stand in a place like Jesus and grieve over the way the world is. I, I, I listened to the, watched the excerpts from the Twitter feed of Aretha Franklin's funeral. You'd be surprised, or not, at what people think they have the right to comment on. In the most acerbic, wink, wink, nod, nod, aren't we superior ways. Dear Jesus, is this the way we're supposed to relate to one another? Can't we just give folks a break? Apparently the answer is no. Not in our highly polarized world that we live in these days. So no matter how we try to avoid it or ignore it or medicate it to dull it, we will keep banging our heads against this reality. Truth, we cannot live without loss. So, as we accept that reality, as we embrace grief as the strategy we need to increase our capacity, as we learn to live with our losses, we discover that God is at work in them to form us to Christ-likeness. 
The purpose of grief is to help us identify and process losses of various kinds. And it's important that our grief be calibrated to the magnitude of the loss. Otherwise, the grief itself becomes a problem instead of the means to resolve the problem. Right? Like I have students. This is the first week of school. I've got uh, probably half a dozen appointments with former students. Graduated last year, and they're coming to school. This is the first time they have not been in school since they were five years old. And they are grieving the loss of a regular rhythm, and the adulting is not turning out quite the way they anticipated that it would. Right? I have a, 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 an appointment in a couple of weeks with a guy who got married, and we're walking through this, and he, is, he, is, he says, I love my wife, I love my marriage, everything's good, but I still can't get away from the sadness that I feel. And so we just had to sit for a minute. Well, what did you lose when you got married? I lost my singleness. Yeah, you did. There ought to be a sadness with that. You, that's a loss. It's, it's not an unreasonable loss. And it doesn't undermine the love you have for your wife. My guess is she's feeling kind of the loss of her singleness too, knowing you. I didn't say that out loud. I didn't say that. I did not say that. It was getting too heavy in here. So it just... Right? But this is, this is the kind of thing. We live with both loss and receipt all at the same time. You can't get to second without leaving first. Right? And first is safe till the game's over. But <laughs> you can't. <laughs> so, a couple of problems that we want to avoid. First of all, not grieving at all because it feels us weak, makes us feel weak and powerless, or, or more specifically, rushing through it too quickly. Um, and, and we deny it, or we hide it, or we medicate it. And the problem is you have still experienced the loss of one kind or another, minor to major, and it will work itself through the system. Grief is the way God built us to honor the things that are honorable and release them. Right? And, 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 and grief, if we don't enter into it, goes underground and does its work almost in spite of you. So, for example, uh, my, my mom died in 1984. I was too stupid to know what was going on. And I thought I had bought into a theology that says, you know, heaven redeems all deaths and we shouldn't feel too sad and so on and so forth. I lost one of the most important people in the world to me and I flew back home and led a Christmas musical the Sunday following her funeral. No, oh, we just keep on going. She's with Jesus. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sad. Oh, it's too bad. And as a result of that, the death of my mom has worked itself through my soul for the last 25, 30 years. If I just leaned into it, felt what I felt when I felt it, I would have been able to work through that in about a year or so. But because I didn't, it worked its way through me for about 25 years. Do you see what I'm saying? It happened. We experienced the loss. Because I didn't own it, because I didn't embrace it, doesn't mean it didn't happen. And so I worked through it in these dark and difficult ways. When somebody, when somebody does die who is close to me, right? Somebody I have cared about. Uh, it's going to take about a year, year and a half to work through the loss, right? 
I have to go through all of the birthdays. I have to go through all of the anniversaries. I have to go to our familiar place that we used to eat. And to this day, how many years is it since my mom or my dad died? If the phone rings at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, it's almost impossible for me to think that it's not my dad. He's been dead for almost 20 years. I see a profile when we're out in public at a shopping mall. I see a profile that just for a moment reminds, or, or a fragrance, right, of, 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 of bread baking. And bang, I'm right back there. That's okay. Can we just once and for all put aside the notion of closure? There's no such thing. There is no such thing. You're not, don't, no, because if you do, do it right, you can function, and, and you're supposed to, right? But there will almost always, especially if it was a catastrophic loss, almost always be a place and a time in which you still feel the deep and profound weight of that loss. And that's okay. That's okay. So that's one thing. The second problem, however, is to get stuck in grief. Because grief is intended to serve a purpose. It's not a final resting place. Sometimes there is a perverse sense of place in which we make our home in grief. We, we become victims. Uh, and we, we, we act like that. And we expect others to treat us that way. We like the excuses that grief gives us or we think it gives us. Uh, sometimes we're grieving uh, as a way of punishing people who have hurt us. Right? Uh, I, I've been betrayed by a friend, so every time I'm with them, I kind of hang my head so they know how deeply wounded, how deeply, tragically, painfully wounded I am as a result of, of their behavior towards me. I just hope that, yes, they're looking. Okay, so I just, I just uh, how, are, how are you? Oh, well, you know. So that's the second thing, because now all of a sudden you're, 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 you're utilizing grief for purposes for which it was not intended, namely to punish others. By the way, when you do that, it's only you that's punished. That's why the genius of forgiveness was invented. Okay? The third thing is that we catastrophize it. Uh, we, we turn every grief into a soap opera it has to be calibrated to the degree of impact. And by the way, you don't get to judge other people's seasons of grief. One of the things is we talked about with kids, for example. Kids experience loss. And as we, as we teach our kids to embrace loss, we don't do it by minimizing the loss that they have experienced at four or five years old. We accept the reality that that lost teddy bear was a big deal. Right? So that we can model, all right, yes, it was, let's, what do we, or the death of a pet, or the loss of a, of a friendship, or whatever it is, to let them experience it at that level so that they can begin to continue to move on. So here are the strategies. What time is it? Are you still with me? Okay. I'll try and get you out in time to beat the Baptist to the buffet. Sorry. Okay. So here are some strategies. First of all, pay attention to the losses. Let them be real. Own them as real. Don't amplify them, but let them be real. Sometimes, candidly, they're a result of unrealistic expectations. 
that we shouldn't have had for our marriage or for our kids or for ourselves or for our job or church or whatever else. Um, maybe I need to own the sense of entitlement that I don't deserve such wounds. And, and when they occur, as they inevitably will, I'm, 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 I'm sabotaged by that. Some uh, are self-explanatory, the deaths of loved ones, and some of them, depending on the nature of my losses, my disappointments, my sadness. I want, I want to do with all of them in owning them is pray them. There's a, the biblical word for this is lament. You probably know this, but of the 150 psalms, about 75 of them deal with sadness or anger or disappointment. So we ought to recalibrate our useful. Here's one that you might find useful. It's Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Do you know God well enough to talk to him this way? David did. Jesus did. Look on me and answer me, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I'm going to die. My enemy then is going to say, I have overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fail. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will still sing the Lord's praise because he has been good to me. Notice what lament does in the back end. It's against the backdrop of the Lord's goodness. The reason we lament is because we are in a situation that is lamentable. So he's praying both about his pain, his sense of abandonment, but he is praying it. And that's what we are invited in to. Second, learn to wait in the pain. That's just the hardest part. When the loss occurs initially, we um, uh, uh, quickly can, can move towards recovery. But the deep work, the, the crucible work, the desert work, is done in the long in-between. It's in the dark Saturday between Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday. You've got to stay there as long as it takes, that, that 40 days and 40 nights. That's where the deep redemptive work, because then it's when you discover that the purpose of grief is not simply to identify and process losses. It is also to increase capacity for life. It clears the decks. It pushes out the corners. No wonder it's painful. It's a massive renovation project of your soul so that you can be like Christ. Grief embraced increases our capacity for mercy, for Christ-likeness. We learn how to suffer those losses, not looking for them, but when they occur, I'm not going to turn away, I'm going to turn towards. Because loss is inevitable to growth, embraced loss is what enables maturity. The long, painful in-between is the place of the deepest work. Let me, let me just say one, one thing here. Watch out for the dragons in the dark. This is where it's possible to blow yourself up in all kinds of self-justifying ways. Did, anybody know what I mean? The temptations, the sins that so easily beset us are made much more readily likely in the dark of disappointment. 
So guard your heart. There will become opportunities for you to blow yourself up in one form or another. And you don't want to screw up grief by adding on guilt. Do you with me? So, so watch out for the dragons. Um, and then the third stage in this is allow the arrival of the new. Remember, the purpose of grief is not simply to honor what is honorable. It's to create space for the new thing that is coming. And if we don't grieve well, we can't receive open hands the new that God is seeking to bring. It's not a betrayal of your loved one to get back to life. Of course you're going to walk with a limp. Of course you're going to grieve. Of course you're going to... But don't let that loss be the definer of your tomorrow. Move on. Loss has created space for the new. Not to accept the new is, in fact, betrayal of the loss. What was the point of it then? You see? Jesus is clear the reason the seed needs to fall into the ground and die is because if it doesn't do that, it will abide alone. It was true for him and it's true for us. That's the conviction that enables us to grieve with hope. Here's Paul's language. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Please notice, this is not a pacifying platitude. This is a core conviction, which enables us to get through the darkest of days. If you follow through the rest of that chapter, you'll discover what are the kinds of things that God is at work in. Remember? Hunger, famine, Trouble, persecution, sickness, they still happen. And God is at work in ways of love for good. We might not always experience it as good, but it is good for the kingdom and thus ultimately for us. We are part of a much larger operation than we had thought before. So James, Peter, Paul, Jesus all say the same thing. Every day's got trouble. Don't be surprised when it happens. Lift your head. Don't waste time wondering why me. Lean in. And that headwind will enable you to sail. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.